It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today our guest is Corey Weeds, who is a saxophonist and the creative and entrepreneurial force behind the Seller Music Group, consisting of Seller Live, Seller Music, and reel-to-reel recordings, and is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year. We discussed that milestone anniversary, as well as the release of Corey Weed's latest album called What Is There To Say, which is backed by a 13-piece string orchestra and is his 18th release as a leader. Our conversation opens first with a discussion about the recording, What Is There To Say. The album is stunning. I mean, it's thank you. Just it's really great stuff. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm always a little bit overwhelmed, or, or overwhelmed might not be the right word, but I'm, I'm always curious and then overwhelmed with the response that that some of my things get. And this one's been no different. I mean, it's, a, it's a little more understandable, I think, with this particular record, just because it, I, I think it appeals to certainly a wider, a broader range of people, just given the fact that it's orchestral and. But you know, I I I'm always surprised when people react so positively, and 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 it's always a, a very nice feeling. And it was a very big project, and it was done, you know, right in the height of the pandemic. And it, in fact, it got delayed a couple of occasions during the pandemic, which, as you might well imagine, when you're dealing with 16, 17 people in studios, could be quite stressful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when we finally got to it, uh, I kind of knew. Um, I knew that we would have something special on our hands because Phil Dwyer, who did all of the the arrangements, I mean, he really is a a, a brilliant guy, um, and so he really did a great job. So it's a you know it's a dream come true for me. I think it's sort of a, a I think even if saxophone players don't know it, I think it's a dream to play with strings. I didn't grow up or go through my career dreaming to play with strings. It's just something that you. I mean, I think for a couple of reasons. One, it's a very specific sound, but two, it's it's almost nearly impossible to pull off from a financial, you know, from a financial standpoint. Oh, sure. I got a record uh, from Crisscross Records called uh, just simply called Gary Simulian with strings, great baritone saxophonist, and that's a record that stuck with me for a very long time, and I I can't really articulate exactly why more that one than some of the other ones that I heard. Of course, you have the classics like Bird with Strings and Clifford Brown with Strings. And those are older and, uh, dare I say, a little bit dated sounding. And I I, I only mean that, you know, I mean, it, it was done, wow, 70 years ago, you know, at least in the case of Bird. There was something about the, the sound of the Gary Simulian recording with the amount of strings that really stuck with me. I didn't want to do a string quartet and I didn't want to do a string orchestra with like Bird did with oboe and harp. I wanted to do a larger ensemble strings record. So the Gary Simulian one was very, very influential uh, in my desire and, and, and piquing my interest to do this. Uh, I honestly didn't think it would happen this quickly, but Phil Dwyer is very much like me. When you 
put an idea in his head, it just sort of lives there and, and gestates and grows. And, and so it all sort of came together. I mean, I don't want to say came together quickly, but the idea, uh, the idea of moving forward happened very quickly. And we have some very generous government support up here. My my label, the Seller Music Group, which I guess I'll get to, we are funded through uh, f- the Foundation to Assist Canadian Talent on Record, Factor Canada, who have been I- extremely pivotal in all of our Canadian recordings um, with very generous support, especially over the pandemic. Um, and I cannot thank them enough, you know, again, over this time, you know, when funding is getting pulled and funding is getting lessened and cut, they upped the ante and they gave us more and they supported labels like mine more. And so it's really sort of changed the landscape as far as what I can do from a Canadian standpoint. Of course, it's a Canadian granting agency, so I can only do Canadian records. But um, it's been phenomenal. So they had a huge part in this recording and uh, they were, I mean, quite simply without their support, we wouldn't have been able to make it happen. And and who would have thought that uh, there, like you had mentioned, that there would be jazz music that comes along with strings attached? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, it's a it's a specific, you know, it's a specific thing. I've I've often said this this record is as much Phil Dwyer's record as it is my record because his writing is so prominent throughout. I didn't want a blowing record, but I also didn't want a tightly arranged, I didn't want a not blowing record. And by blowing, I mean a lot of improvisation. So, I mean, you know, it's not, of course, it's not your typical quartet record where you're doing drum solos and bass solos and piano solos and saxophone solos on every tune. But I did want to stretch out a little bit. So I sort of wanted it to be a regular jazz record enhanced by, by strings. And I think the way we did it is we took certain tunes, you know, the repertoire we discussed what would work better as more of an open blowing tune rather than a a closed sort of tightly arranged kind of string stuff. So I I felt on this record, we kind of got the best of both worlds. It did get a bit of a chance to stretch out a little bit on a couple tunes. And then a couple tunes are sort of shorter and highlighting more the sound of the strings with the quartet, you know, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. It, no, it definitely does. And it lends itself very beautifully when you intermix the, uh, the, the typical jazz quartet and then add the string ensemble to it. It it makes for some really great music. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, I'm really happy with the way it worked out. I couldn't have asked for, for anything more without question. Let's talk about what is there to say. This has a basis in the recording and the project centering around strings. In fact, if correct me if I'm wrong, it's a 13-piece string orchestra? Yeah, you're right, 13, yeah. So 12 basic strings, then we brought in a, a classical bassist as well. You know, this is your, I think, 18th album as a leader. What was the, the main emphasis for putting this one out at this time? It, it is funny that it came out at this time because it's, it's, it, it's not, uh, it, I mean, if you knew me well, you knew, you would know that it's not surprising that I would take on the most expensive project during, you know, the worst possible time in the world. And um, the first thought I had when thinking about this project is who are you going to get to write the arrangements? And there were a couple of people that came to mind. Bill Kuhn was one of them. Uh, but I happened to be on a gig 
uh, in Victoria, which is on Vancouver Island, with Phil Dwyer. And Phil Dwyer is not that much older than me, but Phil Dwyer is was a hero. We all grew up loving and idolizing Phil Dwyer. He was he's a saxophonist and a pianist. Then he decided he can become a lawyer, so now he's an environmental lawyer. So you can kind of imagine he's one of those guys. You know, he's all one of those guys we love, but we also hate because he's so talented. <laughs> So we were on a gig and uh, the gig was really fun. And, you know, I was a little bit intimidated and I, I sort of felt a little bit nervous, but we kind of hit it off and Phil was really fun to play with. I'd never, ever played with Phil before. And we did this gig and we just happened to be in the dressing room and we we're just talking and uh, it just kind of came out like he had done a big orchestral record and it just sort of came out. And I said, hey, would you be into this? Um, and he said, yes, of course I would be into it. And, you know, it just kind of snowballed from there. You know, like I said before, I had factor funding. Um, and so money, it w I don't want to say money wasn't an issue because factor doesn't cover stuff 100%. But I, I knew that I could, uh, I could move some stuff around and make some stuff happen. So we pretty much immediately went right into it. We worked out a, a deal. Phil was very easy to work with. And we started a, a Google spreadsheet with tunes. And I started putting tunes and keys and he started putting tunes and keys. And yeah, I had some originals that I wrote and, 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 you know, I was like, look, man, if you're not cool with these tunes, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Like you have to feel it. You know, you really have to feel it. And if you don't feel it, it's not going to be a problem. And so the material came together quite quickly and he started writing and we had a concert booked and and as I mentioned earlier, that whole thing got canceled because COVID exploded again. We had to change everything. So by the time we got to the concert, like I hadn't heard any of this music. So I had the I had the chart so I could practice, but I hadn't heard any of the music. And when I got to the concert, I, I was I mean I was almost emotional because the music was it, it was more than I could, you know. And I mean to play the music with the in front of the string orchestra, I mean it was incredible. And I just remember sitting there going. Like sort of like pinch yourself, Corey, because this is really, it's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. And the music he written, and I, what I found was it, it was not one of my best performances because I was so, I was so interested in the music. I wasn't concentrating on what I was supposed to be playing. I was just like listening. Oh my God, that sounds so beautiful. Oh, you know, I got to play here. And, you know, so it was, the, the concert was a little disjointed from, from, from my standpoint, but I loved the music and then I had a week to sort of sit with it and we made some changes and then we went into the studio over three days, three, four days and, and we did the record and I thought there's not one thing about it where I thought, oh, Phil missed the mark or I would have rather, you know, had this or that. I mean, he just nailed it. The only thing I could think of was, oh, I wish we did this tune. Oh, I wish we did this tune. Oh, he would have done so great with this tune. You know, and it's like, well, just concentrate on the tunes you picked because he did a great job with the tunes that you did and everything was, you know, everything was cool. So it was very exciting. So in listening to this album, the, the first thought that I had after going through all of it was one word came to mind, and that's lush. I even looked up the meaning of the word lush, mm. uh, and I like this uh, definition that I found, and I think it's very apropos. It, it says uh, lush is very rich and providing great sensory pleasure, and this album does that. I mean, it, it it's just, it's such a beautiful blend of the strings with the, uh, I guess, the traditional jazz quartet that it it strikes in every note and measure uh, as to a lush, beautiful kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with your assessment, I think. I mean, I think the thing that strikes me right off the bat is, and I don't know why I would expect anything different, but, you know, I guess I... 
I don't know. I I wanted it to be, I didn't know how to tell Phil this, but I didn't want it to just to be like, hey, you know, Corey will play and you'd have some string backgrounds and, you know, we'll do a little string thing and then we're out. Like, I want you to fully orchestrate everything. So I, I can't think of the tune off the, I think it might be the first tune at Dawning. Mm-hmm. Alana Marie also might be one where it's like this, but it's just this incredible string intro where it's rich and then we doubled them. So we finished with the strings and then they recorded the exact same thing again with different miking positions. So you get the feeling like there's actually 26 strings there. And it's just like, I remember when I heard, I was like, yes, like, and then I didn't have to worry anymore. And I've been very lucky to be, I did another record. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's called Explosion with the Little Big Band. And it was like a nine piece horns with me out front. And it was the same thing with the arranger there. I I gave her two records and I said, this is what I want. And she did that. And that's what I did with, with Phil. I, I gave him the Gary Simulian records. I don't want you to steal or that's not, but this is the sound that I want. And Phil, in fact, I think Phil kind of overachieved in terms of what I wanted. So it does have a very lush, very big sound to it. And that's exactly what I wanted. And it is uh, for lack of better description. Uh, and if you don't mind, Corey, uh, mm. would you kind of take us uh, on a little bit of a journey through the album? Uh, sure. and because there are, I think, three of the songs of the eight tracks are your compositions, and then yep. the rest are obviously, as we'll uh, learn, uh, from very notable and, and, and wonderful and contributing people to music. Uh, like, for example, you mentioned At Dawning, which mm-hmm. uh, I think was inspired by a Coleman Hawkins release. Yeah, so I'm, that's why I started with this track. I get more questions about that tune than any other tune on the records. Dawning is from a Coleman Hawkins recording called At Ease, which is fantastic. Waltz for Someone Special is a tune that I wrote. It's in, it's a, well, obviously a waltz in 3-4, and the title refers to a dear friend of mine who has since passed away, who was a, a, a huge benefactor supporting me with all kinds of financial and emotional support, and I was never allowed to say her name because she wanted to always be in the background. So the great thing about this tune is I can tell you that I wrote it for you, and uh, you know, you you believe me because it just walked well, for someone special.
and Phil did a great job of that. That's the first one he gravitated to. He was like, oh yeah, I can do that. Alana Marie, as you might imagine, is my wife. And, you know, I don't consider myself like a composer per se, but I felt like with this particular tune, I, I kind of hit on something. I kind of hit on something nice. And, and so I wanted to see that through. I did say to Phil, I'd love it if you could make this work. If you can't, it's okay. And again, he knocked it out of the park. I wish you loved the tune that I've always loved. I've heard it so many different ways. done as a fast swing kind of a conga beat i've heard it done as a ballad i've heard it done kind of as a, a latin vibe so we combine some of that with this and you know it's got a beautiful verse too mm-hmm. which i love this one uh, number five the phantom and the in crowd is a funny one so there's a great recording by duke pearson called the phantom and there was something about the the, the i think it's a little big band it's a small it, yeah it's an orchestra but it's a small orchestra i knew that we weren't going to have anything like this on the record and so I said to Phil, look, this is a weird one, but let me know what you think. And so he did. And he said, I think we should do a medley with the in crowd, which is which is the tune that Ramsey Lewis, I think, made famous, which I didn't really know. of a this was kind of a, a this is another one that people like they're like man the fan that's the best track on the record I'm like really 
So I thought what Phil did with it was very cool. I like what you did, it, it, and I kind of termed it as being like a musical dyslexic thing. And that was yep. the Nat King Cole tune, Wild is Love, and you did a tune called Love is Wild. Yeah, So, and it's sort of loosely based on Wild is Love. And I that tune got turned on to me by a friend who's recorded for the label before, a tenor saxophonist named Sam Taylor. And I was humming this tune forever, and I played Wild is Love at, at my gigs. And But then I kind of started humming this tune. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not Wild is Love. It's kind of like Wild is Love. And so I wrote this tune. <laughs> That was honestly one that I thought Phil would throw away and go, yeah, I'm not really feeling it. But again, you know, he took it and he knocked it out of the park and he had every opportunity to not do it because he had done the other two first. Mm -hmm. um, what is there to say has just been a favorite of mine because one of my favorite records of all time is Sonny Rollins, The Sound of Sonny. And he plays that on there and I've just always loved that tune. Phil did a great job. And then this, the last tune, tune I've been listening to because somebody was coming to town and they hit me to the Shirley Horn record and the name of the record escapes me at the moment, but this tune is on there. And it's, is this from Porgy and Bess? I think it's from Porgy and Bess. Mm -hmm. There's a boat leaving soon for New York.
This one was tough because it's a long tune. Uh, it's one of the longer tunes on the record. It was very open solo-wise. And so it was one of the tougher ones of, of the eight. But, you know, overall, I think the material is very diverse and very varied and, and, and kind of shows my compositional side, which is not something I show very often. You know, so, yeah, that that's kind of the, uh, that's the quick uh, tour of the record. It's an absolutely terrific recording. And I, I'm sure you're most proud of it as well as everybody uh, involved with this particular release. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty proud of it. I thought the strings did an incredible job. You know, they learned, they got the parts beforehand. Cam Wilson made sure they got the parts beforehand. He's the lead violinist and they looked at it. So we actually made really good time in the studio, which allowed us to double track some of the stuff. So we literally recorded it all. And then we moved all of the microphones around and moved the positioning of the strings and recorded a bunch of stuff again and kind of doubled them up. So I, it couldn't have gone, you know, I mean, I questioned, you know, like all musicians and artists, I questioned my own performance sometimes. Like I wish I, I, I was pretty uh, overwhelmed by the moment in the studio. And, um, you know, most of my recordings that I'm, extre- I, I, don't get me wrong, I'm happy with it. But the ones that I'm really happy with are the ones where I've got to play the music a lot. And I didn't have the opportunity with uh, with this one because of the size and just, you know, the logistics. But I think for for what it is, I think it came off sounding really, really good. I, I thought Phil really outdid himself, and you know John Lee on bass and Jesse Cahill, who don't get a lot of love because they're kind of in the background, are two of my dearest friends on bass and drums. And uh, to have them on the recording is very special. And uh, yeah, so I'm 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 very happy with it. Well, let me congratulate you about the fact that this is the 20th anniversary of the Cellar Music Group. 2001 is when you started it, uh, I believe, in Vancouver, Canada? Correct, yeah. It was started as sort of a, an offshoot of my uh, jazz club. I bought a jazz club in 2000 called The Cellar. And uh, pretty much immediately started, to be completely honest with you, I thought it would be the shortest ride of my life. You know, I thought I'd have a jazz club for a year, we'd go to business, and then I'd get a real job. Um, and uh, so I immediately started taping and recording stuff because you know i wanted to tell my kids you know about this great year we had and this neat stuff that we did so a lot of stuff happened in between there uh you know we didn't go out of business uh we lasted 14 years and when we finally did close i made the decision to close we did we weren't forced to close financially i just had enough i had two young kids as I was mentioning before, and it was taking a lot of time away from my family and it was becoming quite stressful and I wasn't enjoying it anymore and I wasn't enjoying the music. But in those 14 years that we were there, you know, we installed some recording equipment right inside the club and we started recording music and we Seller Live was sort of born. And, you know, now, I mean, I've lost count. I think we're up to 275 or 280 titles. The the rebranding uh, to the Seller Music Group happened after I closed my club because even though we had done some studio records, we'd done a lot of studio records while the club was open. Seller Live didn't really, it didn't really kind of, it didn't make sense anymore. And I was also doing uh, some tour booking. I was doing some promotion. I was doing my own playing and my own touring. And so we rebranded. We rebranded to the Seller Music Group. And uh, now, if we put a studio record out, it's so uh, you'll you'll notice the catalog number is CM. And if we put our live record, we have the catalog number starts with a CL. So you know, and it encompasses now the Seller Music Group encompasses everything that I do, and I do a lot of different stuff. So, but the biggest 
entity kind of under the that seller music group umbrella certainly is the label and uh you know i always joke that i've been trying to put the label out of business for 20 years and it just it won't go away um hmm. so now i've had to sort of fully embrace it as a as a you use the word viable but that's debatable but it, it it generates enough income and enough interest and enough you know sort of um extra things that it's worth keeping going and it's it's served as a nice outlet not only for myself but for many other musicians too in, in a time when you know putting out records is hard whether it's the the state of the music business or financial constraints you know it's uh it's an interesting time and so it gives me great a great deal of pleasure to be able to have this outlet for musicians and and you know in some ways we still operate like a traditional label where we pay the artists and and put these records out and and in other ways you know we have some other deals and the way we work things granting situations and private investment and you know so we're always looking at ways to just to continue to put the music out you know i'm in an interesting situation in that i don't have to rely on the revenue of a record label to pay my mortgage or to put food on my kids table you know that's that that part of my life is taken care of by my presenting activities here in vancouver i operate a club called frankie's jazz club as well as my own playing and some of the other things that i do in the music business that are perhaps a little more stable than a record label so you know i can come to new york as i just did and 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 play and record five records and and not have to worry as much financially as maybe somebody else that's also having to pay their mortgage and feed their children and insure their car and pay gas and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it doesn't mean that it's not viable or it's not doing well. It just means that I have a, uh, I have a bit of an advantage. It's just something that contributes to my overall income and, and overall professional life. So I, I'm very lucky. It's fantastic. Getting back to the Seller Music Group, you've already mm-hmm. alluded to the fact that there is Seller Music, uh, there's also Seller Live, but what about the third mm-hmm. component of it, Real to Real? Explain that one. Sure. Well, that one, yeah. So Real to Real, although it operates under the umbrella of Seller Music Group, it's a separate company, but uh, you know, that that Real to Real start. So first of all, Real to Real is an archival recording company. And, and to, to be clear, what archival means is that we released we released never before heard recordings. So it's not a reissue uh, company. People get archival and reissue mixed up a lot. Um, This is stuff that's come out that has never been made available for public consumption before. Maybe it was played on a radio show or, you know, and that was started uh, because of a, a friendship that got sort of struck up with Zev Feldman, who everybody knows and loves. And I brought Zev here. Zev is the president of Resonance Records, and he also works for Blue Note Records in producing archival recordings and never before heard recordings for these companies. And, uh, you know, we became Facebook friends, and I was doing an event here in Vancouver, a very cool event, and I brought him up to sort of be a, a lecturer, if you will. And and we struck up a we struck up a friendship. We kind of we kind of uh, you know we were kind of kindred spirits, and and. We kind of liked each other, and and he just happened to mention in passing that he had a Cannonball Adderley tape that George Clavin, his his boss, had passed on. And you know, being an alto player, I'm an I'm an alto player before a tenor player. I, I couldn't let it go. I was like, wait a minute, Cannonball Adderley, back up, back up, back up. So fast forward a few years, uh, and we released Cannonball Adderley, swinging in Seattle, and uh, Etta Jones and the Cedar Walton Trio at uh, the Left Bank. Those are the first two um, releases that came out. And then we've gone on, we're working on our, 
and I have lost count. Now I think we're working on our eighth release that'll come out in April. Um, and then, you know, we're working on more stuff. So, uh, that's been a lot of fun. That's a totally different animal. It requires a lot of patience, which I'm not, you know, I don't have a lot of patience. So it's been a real learning curve for me. Um, but we've done some really great stuff and it's been very, very cool. And I get to hear some, some really incredible music that'll probably never see the light of day, but would, you know, would make your head spin if I told you what I get to listen to every day, you know, when Zev's sending me stuff. So that's been also, a, and, and the other thing about that is very vinyl driven. So it's a, almost a collector's vinyl collector's market for that. You know, we're putting out double LPs that are selling for forty nine ninety nine US and, and and triple LPs, so you can imagine the manufacturing costs around that. But the other issue right now that I don't know if you're aware of or your listeners would be aware of is that there's an extreme shortage of vinyl. So if I have right now, if I have a a release that's ready to go and I send it to my vinyl manufacturer, and it doesn't matter which one, it can be any vinyl manufacturer in the world, you're looking at one year, if you're lucky. Hmm. Uh, it might come a little before that. So that's, that's sent a real... Uh, it's been a really a real tough thing to deal with, but it's a fun it's a fun little side thing that I do. And as I said, we're working on we're coming out with our eighth release now, and so uh, I'm I'm excited about that too. You know, I get to wake up every day and think about jazz music. That's all I ever wanted. You know, it's my whole life is 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 jazz music. I don't you know I don't have to be a a, a gas jockey or a, I don't have to have a, a day gig I don't have to teach I don't have to do it and with respect to all the people that do those things it's just never what I wanted I wanted to be sure surrounded and ensconced by this music and I've been very lucky to be supported by so many people and that's what I do I wake up and the first thing I think about is music and records and saxophone and gigs and jazz so I'm I'm, I'm very happy So tell me about a collaboration that you have with Jeremy Pelt yeah, okay. Uh, I was hoping you were going to ask about that. Yeah, so, you know, this was an interesting one. Um, so, of course, the George Floyd thing happened, and everybody was blacking out their Instagram screens. And my first thought was, great, got to black out my Instagram screen and, you know, support the support my, my, my brothers and sisters. And then I, I sort of thought, so I black it out today, I feel good about myself, and then tomorrow I unblack it out, and I just go back to life as normal. And I, I, I get, I, I get it, but it bugged me. And I'm like, I'm not a rich guy. I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm not a rich guy at all, you know, I'm, uh, but I thought I'm in a position to do more. And when I thought that I didn't know what that quite, what that meant, but I was like, no, I need to do more. And I started looking at why am I not recording more black artists and who can I talk to about this? And, you know, one of the reasons that I don't gravitate to recording black artists, of course, has nothing to do with race. There are black artists on the label all over the place. But if you look at the kind of music I like and the kind of people that I have access to recording, and what I mean by that is like, you know, I can't record certain people because they have they have contractual things mm -hmm. or they're too, you know, they're too big for my label. So the people that are recording bebop and hard bop that I gravitate towards to our white, Eric Alexander, Jim Rotundi, Joe Magnarelli, David Hazeltine, Mike Ludon, John, Joe Farnsworth. Like the list just goes on a Grant Stewart. You know, the list goes on and on. And I'm like, okay. So I called Jeremy up and Jeremy's a good friend. And I said, look, man, I have an idea and I need you to bear with me um, because it's going to involve you, but I need you to first answer a bunch of stupid white person questions and not get mad at me. 
you know, cause I'm from Vancouver, I'm on the West coast. I mean, obviously I'm an intelligent guy, but you know, we're pretty sheltered from that stuff out here. You know, we're, we're not pretty sheltered. We're very sheltered. You know, I've traveled and I've been in New York and Chicago and Detroit, you know, I've been, I've been around, but you know, we're still pretty sheltered so as it turns out, you know, my questions weren't as, as stupid as I thought they were. And Jeremy was very patient with me. And I said, look, I want to start a series of recordings that highlight black artists and I want you to produce them. I want to be involved from a selection standpoint and I want to be involved in that process, but that's the only process other than paying the bills that I, I want to be involved in. So we talked about, are we going to name the series? Like, no, because then it differentiates, then it differentiates it. And that to me, that's defeating the purpose. You know, are we going to do press? Yeah, we're going to do press just like the rest of the, records that we do press on jeremy and i came up with a joint statement that he helped me work on and we've released uh three we've released you probably just got the last ones anthony wanzi's lorraine's lullaby mm-hmm. uh bruce harris quartet was the first one uh, michael stevenson meets alexander claffey is the second one as i mentioned wanzi and then i was just in new york recording billy drummond and jeremy produced that one and that one sounds incredible and while I was in New York, I got a bunch more funding to produce a whole bunch more, about 10 more. So I'm really excited about it. And I, I think that we're, I think that we're doing really good work and I don't want to, you know, I don't want anybody to, I'm a happy course, happy to talk about it on the radio. And, but I never, ever wanted it to be a, a oh, seller music. Look what seller music's doing for the black artists. That's not, that's not. That's not it. That's not what I want because it defeats the purpose. If they want to say that, fine. Like if, if the artists want to say that, that's fine. But I, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just putting out records and, you know, we're raising money to specifically do some records that quite frankly, I could not do if I didn't have that money. Mm-hmm. So it's been really great. And Jeremy just texted me the other day when I got home, he said, we're doing really good work here. Thank you. And Jeremy's a great producer. He's great to work with. And he has a relationship, and so he reaches out to the artists, and then the artists and I negotiate the the um, the fees. And what we were doing at first was we were making a donation to a charity of the artist's choice, a black charity of the artist's choice. We pulled that back, not because we thought it was a bad idea, but you know we need this money to go as far as we can, and we thought, no, putting that money into the recording is the way we want to go. We're trying to provide some touring opportunities for these artists as well. So we have uh, Michael Stevenson and Anthony Wanzi coming out to Vancouver to play a mini jazz festival that I book. And we're trying to get Bruce Harris out here as well. And hopefully Billy Drummond will be out here at some point as well. So it's just, it's, it feels really nice. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's, and it allows me, it's another thing that allows me to keep doing what I love doing. That's making records and bringing this stuff out to the public. And it's, so it's a lot of fun. So I love Jeremy. I've always liked him and we've become very good friends over the past several years. And, and it's, it's just really nice. It's kind of come full circle and we're doing some really cool stuff. Bravo and great work. So it's good to hear that uh, you've taken on this project. Well, it would be foolish not to ask this question after listening to this. There will be people that want to know more about you and how can people find that out? Yeah, well, I have my own website, coreyweeds.com. That's C-O-R-Y, weeds, W-E-E-D-S.com. That's my personal website. And then the record label website, the easier of the two is sellerlive.com. That's seller with a C. 
So C-E-L-L-A-R live.com. You can get all our stuff there, all, all the records, the downloads. And, and then, you know, we're available worldwide through music video distributors and we're on all the streaming platforms. And yeah, so I mean, I'm an easy guy to find. Well, I will tell you, Corey, that <laughs> I, I would love to continue this conversation. Uh, you're fascinating. You're very articulate, certainly very knowledgeable. Uh, and uh, if I wanted to go as long as uh, I'd like yeah. to, we'd have to do a boxed set. <laughs> well, I do. I do love to talk about the music. I love to talk about what I do. And if you ever want to do it again, I'm totally game. I love it. Fantastic. Well, this has been time well spent for me. And I'd like to say thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Thank you for the continued support. If you ever need anything, just let me know. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with saxophonist Corey Weeds. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.